But right now we're at the part of the movie plot where everything is actually looking pretty bleak in terms of the overall indicators. If you look closer though, you see all these innovation, that buzz of excitement, the 110,000 people who came to Dubai just to make business of climate action. That is the closer look that points me towards we can still do this, but it requires everybody. Everybody is an, a player on the field of climate action. There's no spectators in this. Nobody can say, oh, I didn't know, or sorry, I was on the wrong side of history. That's not where you want to be. You want to engage now as a company, as a citizen, as a government. Welcome to The Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and today we unravel how one of the world's largest software companies is taking the lead in sustainability. Throughout this discussion, we'll delve into Salesforce Nature Positive Strategy, exploring its initiatives in nature restoration, and uncovering the company's contributions to the goal of growing 100 million trees by 2030 through its partnership with 1T.org. Additionally, we'll navigate Salesforce Comprehensive Climate Action Plan, touching on crucial aspects like emissions reduction, carbon removal, ecosystem restoration, education, innovation, and engagement with regulation and policy. Stay tuned for insightful conversations on carbon credits and science-based targets as we explore the landscape of sustainability and climate action on this episode of The Green Hour. Salesforce is widely recognized for its cloud-based CRM software, but the company has evolved into a trailblazer in corporate social responsibility and sustainability. Beyond its core business, Salesforce has achieved net zero residual emissions, powering its operations with 100% renewable energy. As a founding partner of 1T.org, the company is dedicated to planting 100 million trees by 2030. The company's ambitious vision extends to accelerating major corporations towards net zero status, employing innovative tools like their net zero cloud ESG platform and a groundbreaking net zero marketplace for carbon credits. Their commitment includes sequestering 200 gigatons of carbon through the conservation, restoration and growth of one trillion trees, safeguarding oceans and igniting an ecopreneur revolution. Salesforce is making waves not only in the tech industry, but also as a force for positive environmental change. Joining us on the Green Hour is the Vice President of Climate Action for Salesforce, Tim Christofferson. Within the Global Impact Team, he is focused on the role of nature-based solutions to climate change. Before joining Salesforce, Tim was head of the Nature for Climate branch at the United Nations Environment Program and he led a growing global movement backed by all UN member states in over 120 partner organizations to prevent, halt, and reverse the degradation of ecosystems worldwide. Tim's career has been dedicated to navigating the intersection of nature and climate, striving to find solutions that simultaneously stabilize the climate 
and preserve our precious ecosystems. To reach the goals of the Sustainable Development Goals in the Paris Agreement, more large companies need to follow Salesforce lead in making sustainable choices. Their example shows how corporate actions can contribute to a more eco-friendly and responsible future. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. I've, I've been excited for this conversation ever since we kind of met by chance um, in a hallway during the, the Concordia Annual Summit. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while, and I'm excited to share what your career has been and then also what Salesforce is doing for sustainability. Hi, Preston. Pleasure to be here. So the first thing I want to start off with, Tim, is I followed you on, on LinkedIn during your travels to Dubai um, through COP28, and I, and I loved what I saw. And it was really cool to, to kind of feel like I was there with you during COP28 through your videos that you shared and all the information. But I think it'd be really good to start with, you know, what, what came out of COP28 and what were your thoughts on, on that, that two-week period in Dubai? Yeah, thanks. So there were a lot of people in Dubai. This was a record participation COP. There were estimated 110,000 people in total, 70,000 blue badge holders, so people who can access the blue zone where the actual negotiations are happening. And I had mixed feelings about so many people coming to compare. At the Paris Climate Agreement at COP21, there were 30,000 people in total. And we can't keep ballooning the cops to larger and larger gatherings. So Salesforce had a very small delegation. I was a delegation of one for our global impact team. Um, and I think we need to move a lot of this discussion online onto Slack or share our knowledge in podcasts like yours, because we can't keep meeting with a hundred or more thousand people, especially in Baku, which is probably the next host of COP20. 29, and then in Belém, in the middle of the Brazilian Amazon, where COP30 will be held, they don't have capacity for 110, 120,000 people. But the outcomes, let me talk a little bit about the outcomes of COP. And I had a heated uh, debate with uh, a friend of mine who's a journalist on the outcomes. <clears throat> in his view, COP was an abject failure and an exercise in greenwashing for the oil industry. I see this very differently. I see it as a very strong market signal that language in the final text said the world will transition away from fossil fuels. If you work in finance, for example, you should take that market signal serious because sooner or later, it will catch up with long-term investments into fossil fuel infrastructure or extraction. So it's a, it's a very strong signal, especially for finance, to start pulling away from fossil fuel projects. And that is huge. That's uh, never been in any COP decision before. I haven't looked too much into the outcomes, but like I said, j just watching your videos that you posted and it almost seemed like my entire LinkedIn feed was people at COP28. Um, so it was, it was cool to feel like I was there, even though I'm, I'm in Georgia. But, but I think that's, that, that's a good place to start, um, especially considering you know, your background with the United Nations and different positions you've, you've had with the United Nations. So I want to unpack your background a little bit and understand, um, we know you work at Salesforce now, but understand, you know, how you got to where you are today. And I mentioned the United Nations. This is one position that you carried where you're the head of the Nature for Climate branch at the United Nations uh, in Environment Program. So could you talk a little bit about this, you know, what your role was um, and what you accomplished during this, during this period? So the UN Environment Program, or UNEP, is based in Nairobi, Kenya. There's 
where its global headquarters is. So my family, I lived in Kenya for the last 10 years before joining Salesforce uh, last year. Uh, and by the way, that's a beautiful country and it's one, it was wonderful to live in, in Kenya and in Africa. And I had a global role there at UNEP at, of Nature for Climate Branch. I was also the initial coordinator of the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, which we're still in. The decade 2021 to 2030 that aims to halt and reverse the degradation of ecosystems worldwide. That's a big, that's a big ask, um, but it's a necessary ask because we all depend on healthy ecosystems for food, for clean water, for clean air, for health, recreation. So we have to make sure nature is intact to provide our civilization with everything we need. So my roles there were, um, for example, overseeing our investments in what we call ecosystem-based adaptation, using mangroves instead of seawalls to ensure coastal cities are protected from storm surges, using urban forests to ensure cities like Georgia are not, you know, cities like Atlanta, sorry, for, for example, are not um, inundated with high levels of rainfall during extreme weather events, which we see more and more. So using nature as our most powerful ally for climate resilience, but also for climate mitigation. I was also overseeing the what is called the UN Red Program. So Article 5 of the Paris Agreement deals with forests, but we have to stop deforestation and restore forests globally. And RED is the acronym for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And the UN has a program for that, which I was overseeing. and. Um, Finally, my, my role was also to set up a climate finance team at UNEP. So we triggered several large-scale funding mechanisms. One that is still running now called the Agri3 Fund, together with a private sector bank called Rabobank, investing a billion dollars in climate-smart and nature-positive agriculture. There's still a lot of work to do there, but it was an initial market signal, again, to the entire agri-food system that we need to urgently change. And these signals are important because one thing I've learned since joining the private sector, there's this constant benchmarking going on against your peers, your competitors, your investors, your customers. So there's a lot of, a lot of things you can do in the private sector through critical mass. Once there's a tipping point, things can happen very quickly and there's a lot of change happening very quickly once you change the norm and the baselines. So that's why I joined Salesforce, because we have 200,000 customers globally. Salesforce is widely regarded as a sustainability leader. What we do at Salesforce matters and is also really widely replicated across the private sector. So this is a really pivotal position in changing at the speed and scale that we now need the investments and the policy decisions and the the purchasing decisions across the private sector to ensure we move to a net zero nature positive world. So you, you mentioned the word nature positive, and this is a big word that, that Salesforce or a term that Salesforce uses a lot and something that I really like. Um, I'd never, never really heard this term used before like Salesforce uses it, but it makes so much sense. The first question I'll ask you about Salesforce is how does Salesforce um, view the connection between nature and climate? And how does this ideology shape the company's approach to sustainability? 
So it's scientifically very well documented that nature and climate are interlinked. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change did a joint exercise with their counterpart for biodiversity, which is called IPBES. It's the Intergovernmental Platform for Ecosystem Services and Biodiversity. And they outlined very clearly that, for example, nature can solve about one-third of the mitigation of the carbon sequestration that we need to slow down climate change. It is a powerful ally in building resilience and adaptation. So for us, nature action is climate action, and climate action is nature action. We clearly recognize that we also need technology. Salesforce invests a lot in startups, in funds, in carbon dioxide removal technologies, but we also have a strong investment portfolio in nature because we see it is very much linked to our climate action plan and not only for mitigation as i said also for building the resilience and ensuring that our staff worldwide have healthy nature they can recover in have healthy food have clean water i mean these are all very basic essential things that the world economy until today is taking for granted What we're seeing now, though, there's a big social tipping point across the private sector, is that nature is is starting to be recognized and valued for its true value. And once that happens, it will be inevitable that more investments will flow back into nature, into building the natural capital that sustains the entire world economy. So we're seeing that. That great restoration, the Twitter marketing report called it in in 2022, sweeping across the globe, more and more people are realizing we are part of nature. If we start to undermine nature's functionality, we undermine our civilization. And investing in nature conservation and restoration is becoming a much, much bigger priority. Hmm. Well, it looks like Salesforce is, is doing just that, talking about nature restoration at scale. As as a founding partner of of one one t.org, um, Salesforce has set this ambitious goal, um, and this is actually something when we talked in in New York, where I, I said, "Wow, I I can't believe this is a goal that y'all have. This is incredible to even think about this goal of growing 100 million trees by 2030." So Salesforce has said that they're going to do this. Um, I want to understand how Salesforce is doing this, where you're deploying the trees. Um, and, and how do you, I guess, deploy 100 million trees? I mean, it just, it's kind of mind boggling to think about. So I should maybe add here that I'm a forester by background. So this is really not only uh, my expertise, it's also my passion. Um, I live on a farm here in Denmark with my family, and we've just converted one of our fields to a forest. Uh, this is my my private endeavor is not Salesforce, um, but we planted 29,000 trees, 26 different native species. So we designed the forest to have different aspects, including one that we call the edible forest. So there's chestnuts and walnuts and hazelnuts and wild apples. So this is, it's, it's really fascinating to invest in restoring intact forest ecosystems. Very important to me that we don't talk about planting trees because that is just a very simplistic expression of what we are after. We, what we want are intact functioning forest ecosystems that provide clean water for people, that can protect cities from heavy rainfall or from drought. So we want to rebuild forest ecosystems for people, climate, and nature. That's what 1T.org is about. 
always looking for more companies that are courageous and adventurous enough to embark on this exciting journey with us. Our own commitment is 100 million trees by 2030, and uh, we're about halfway there. We commissioned a full evaluation this year of the 15 different countries where we've invested in the projects and looked at what worked, what didn't work so well, because this is hard and it's complicated. You need to have the right tree at the right time with local community participation and benefits. And that is complicated because it's also different everywhere you go. There are over 60,000 species of trees in the world, and it's an enormous amount of knowledge you need to do this right at the local level, which is why we work with trusted local partners. So Salesforce does not... Sometimes we, our staff will go out and spend volunteer time, days or even weeks sometimes to help with tree planting, but mostly these are organizations that we fund to plant trees or conserve additional trees because we also invest in conservation of forests that otherwise might be at risk. All of this effort is outside of our carbon credit purchasing because it's important to us that we differentiate our investments in carbon credits, which are also, in many cases, nature-based solutions, so forests or other existence, and our 100 million tree commitment. For the 100 million trees, we still have bit over 50 million trees to go, but we've already learned a lot and happy to share that learning with other companies that also want to invest. It is one of the most rewarding investments out there that you can make as a company and also as an individual to plant a tree or a forest if you can afford it. And there are many companies who can afford it. So I hope we can get more companies on board to ensure we restore intact forest ecosystems and importantly, conserve what we've left. Deforestation accounts for 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. If deforestation was a country, it would be the third largest emitter. So it's very, very clear that this has to stop. And that means reviewing all of our supply chains, reviewing our investments, our investment portfolios as companies, reviewing legislation if you're a government. And together, we can absolutely stop deforestation. I would say trees are, are the unsung heroes of our world. A lot of times, you look at a tree and you might not really think about what it's doing for us, but it's sequestering carbon dioxide, it's um, protecting communities from rainfall, I mean, it's also bringing, bringing beauty com to communities. I mean, I'm sure in, in where you're living on, on this farm where you've built your own forest, I'm sure it just made the whole, the whole place so much more beautiful. So it's not, not, only, not only sequestering that carbon. Um, but it's also giving those social co-benefits that we see a lot of times um, in sustainability. Yeah, for sure. All our neighbors were really uh, enthusiastic about the idea and having this forest now they can take walks in. I mean, trees here grow fairly slowly. So this is an intergenerational project. But um, it's clearly an investment that I would do uh, again in a heartbeat. It was, it's such a gratifying um, way to take some climate action and nature action at the same time and strengthen your local community. <clears throat> and we have these kinds of projects at a larger level funded by Salesforce um, across the whole world. You mentioned forests and trees as the unsung heroes of climate action. I would say one of the rock stars among forests and trees are mangroves. So these are coastal forest existence that, for example, serve as the hatching areas and nurseries for about a third of all the world's commercial fish stocks. So we need these mangroves to have fisheries and have basically 
an important source of protein for the entire world. We also need them to protect coasts from storm surges. They're highly effective in buffering against tsunamis or against other major storm-related surges. And um, they also provide livelihoods, timber, non-timber forest products for a lot of local communities. So one of our big successes at COP28 was that we launched what we call the financial roadmap for the global mangrove breakthrough. So we've gotten together with 49 countries, about 50 other companies, 30 NGOs, and formed the global mangrove breakthrough and laid out how we will together invest $4 billion over the coming years in an additional 15 million hectares of mangroves conserved or restored globally. And as somebody pointed out at COP28, this was the head of CI, Sanjaya, who's a great, great person. Um, he pointed out that uh, if we compare what that actually means in terms of cost, $4 billion, it's the same as the list price of eight Airbus 380 that are basically on the runway at Dubai Airport. And for that money, you can save a third of the world's commercial fish stocks. You can save many cities from coastal storm surges. We have to shift our mind what nature really needs and what the investments level, levels are and see nature as critical infrastructure. And then that kind of money is easy to rechannel and, and to invest in nature. Yeah, you bring up a good point because um, I talk about this a lot on the podcast of insustainability, making it make sense economically and environmentally. When people might hear that $4 billion number, they might think, wow, that's such a, a large amount of money. But then as you're alluding to, you see the ROI um, and you see what, what mangroves can do to help um, cities and communities and, and coastal areas. The benefits outweigh the cost, um, but a lot of a lot of times people just have to get past that initial point of four billion dollars um, because they they provide so much more benefits. Um, and I, I'm glad you said that again because we talk about it all the time: bridging the gap between economic and environmental in terms of sustainability. Absolutely agree. So at, when I was still at UNEP, we put out a report at the launch of the UN decade on ecosystem restoration, saying for every dollar invested in restoration, you can generate up to $33 in return. Now, these are returns, some of which are monetary to the actual investor, but most of them are societal returns in the form of ecosystem services. And they're not always monetized, which is why I mentioned earlier that we take nature for granted and nature is economically still largely invisible in how we make investment decisions. And that has to change. Luckily, it is changing. You know, there's the task force on nature-related financial disclosures that requires companies to review how they invest and how they account for risks related to nature impacts and dependencies. There is changes in the EU with legislation coming called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive and the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive that will require all big companies, also U.S. companies that do business in the EU, by the way, to clearly outline what their climate action plan is or their climate transition plan, as it's called, their nature transition plan. So all of what we discuss now and for Salesforce is, has been voluntary action for many years is turning into compliance. It's turning into regulation that all companies have to comply with. That's a massive, massive shift that will slowly unfold. Not many companies are well prepared for it from all I hear when I speak with our customers. 
But this is an area where Salesforce can help them prepare and help them get ready for that transition because it's also largely a data management challenge to know what your climate footprint is, what your nature footprint is, what your water withdrawal is for, in our case, data centers. So all of these data flows um, will be much, much more transparent and under scrutiny in the coming years, which is a good thing. So, so pivoting, pivoting from that conversation on, on nature positive and forest and, and mangroves and shifting that to the conversation on carbon credits. Carbon credits is a topic that I hear all the time that people say, I don't really understand what this is. Um, I, work, I work for a, a company in sustainability and our salespeople just cannot grasp what carbon credits are. So Salesforce does a lot with carbon credits. You have a big marketplace on it. But I want to start off and ask you the question for our listeners who, who may not be familiar or may be confused on what carbon credits are. Can you explain what they are and why companies choose to purchase them? Yeah, so first of all, you're not alone in um, looking at this whole market and seeing that it's very complicated because it actually is. We are trying to increase the transparency in the market, the integrity of the buyers, and the quality of the supply. So these are basic three main things that still need to improve with the voluntary carbon market. But let's start with what a carbon credit is. When a company invests in a carbon credit, they usually want to compensate for an emission that they have and that they otherwise cannot reduce. You mentioned when we spoke earlier, the science-based target initiative, they've put out guidance for what can count as a compensation. There's more recent guidance that we support from the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, VCMI, which has put out a claims code of practice telling companies when they can claim a compensation. <clears throat> and then there's a lot of guidance out there for what makes a good carbon credit. So in principle, you have a ton of emissions that comes, let's say, from a flight that you have to take as a company executive. There's no sustainable aviation fuel available yet for an affordable price, which is why we've invested in SAFs, as they're called, SAF, sustainable aviation fuels, that will replace fossil fuels, hopefully, over time and make flying more carbon neutral. But that doesn't exist yet. So that ton has to be compensated. However, we have to, at this point, say the first priority is reduce your emissions as a company. Keep your eye on that ball. What we say as Salesforce, though, is that companies can do more. They can reduce and invest. They can reduce their carbon emissions and invest in climate action. And the best way to do that right now is the voluntary carbon market because it has quality thresholds. It has criteria for you as a buyer to say, I want a ton of emission reductions. I want it in Brazil. I want it from nature-based solutions. And I want it to be verified not only by one standard, but by two so that I can be sure what I buy is, is good quality. So all of that exists in the market today. There is still a lack of understanding when and how to claim those compensations against your corporate targets. For me, that is actually a secondary discussion. It's important in the context of what we call hard-to-bait industries like fossil fuel, energy, cement, where the risk exists that they use carbon credits as a get-out-of-jail-free card 
using a monopoly analogy, but maybe there's a there's a, there's a better analogy. They use it as an excuse for inaction to do very difficult things, namely reducing the emissions. That risk is real, which is why SDTI, Science-Based Target Initiative, has made it clear companies first need to reduce, then they can claim carbon credits. We do both at the same time. Salesforce has a 50% emission reduction target by 2050, sorry, by 2030. Um, and at the same time, we see emission reductions and carbon credits as integrated parts of our overall portfolio. Buying carbon credits is for us the last but not later option in our climate action plan. The reason why we need to invest now, though, is that the climate can't wait. We have to solve for climate action right now. And the voluntary carbon market is an immense opportunity to channel money into technologies, into nature action, into climate action that needs to happen right now. Let me just end by saying if the largest 1,700 companies in the world would compensate just 10% of their current emissions, it would generate a trillion dollars by 2030. That is money we cannot afford to not invest in climate action. We need that money. Yeah, so I've, I've led workshops, um, again, with my company, where I'm talking about you know, our, our carbon plan as a company, talking about our carbon neutral program. And a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from, from our people is they use this term called pay to play. Um, and they have hesitancy because the way they view carbon credits is, okay, companies can, like you're saying, using that monopoly reference, get out of jail free card. Um, let me just put a lot of money out there and I can reduce my carbon impact because I'm buying these carbon credits, let's say somewhere else around the world. And I, and I want to understand what you think about this, this ideology of pay to play in, in carbon credits. I don't want to ask if you agree with it, but just what you would say to those people that might have that ideology about carbon credits. Yeah, what I would say to that is that the science here doesn't work because we cannot uh, just invest our way out of this through carbon credits. There's not enough opportunities for emission reductions through carbon credits, but more importantly, if we continue to emit fossil fuel emissions and other emissions from land use, for example, from deforestation at the rate we're doing now, it will not be enough to stay within the 1.5 degree target limit or even in the 2 degree target limit. So we very clearly need to do both, and everybody is absolutely crystal clear on that. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the SBTI, the, even the Paris Agreement, it is very clear that we have to do both. So if somebody says we only do one, we only, do, we only reduce or we only invest, I, I say that's both not enough. It's actually uh, better if you only reduce, but if you only invest, that's certainly um, dubious also in terms of your climate uh, integrity and any claims that you want to make. You have to mm -hmm. reduce and invest. Reduce and invest. Those are the two things every company has. And the last question I'll ask you on carbon credits before we get into the net zero marketplace, um, this is just something out of curiosity that I have. Let, let's just say a company in the U.S. is manufacturing, they're emitting carbon, um, and they're purchasing carbon credits from, let's say, somewhere across the world let's say Brazil, China, Indonesia, somewhere around the world. Should, should companies be purchasing carbon credits in the areas that they're emitting carbon? 
Because to me, it seems like if you're emitting carbon in, in the U.S., you should be investing in carbon credits in the U.S. as well. But maybe I'm looking at it uh, in, in not a good perspective because, as you're saying, if we're trying to limit limit uh, climate rise 1.5 to 2 degrees, then we need a worldwide solution, not just in our country. But I just asked you that question of, you know, companies, should they be purchasing carbon credits in their specific areas in their country rather than purchasing them across the world? So we purchase uh, carbon credits both in the U.S. and, and a lot of um, other countries. There are two things to consider here. One is a ton of carbon in Georgia, United States of America is the same as a ton of carbon in uh, Georgia, the country in the Caucasus, right? Uh, it's the same atmosphere that we all share. A ton where you are is a ton over there. So that does not limit where you buy your carbon credits. It becomes more nuanced, though, when you look at the co-benefits that you want to achieve. And for us, the reason why we invest so much in nature-based solutions and nature carbon credits is that they produce so many co-benefits for healthy people, for healthy communities, for resilience and adaptation. And there, of course, it matters where you have operations as a company and where you want to see that resilience investment. There's a third consideration I would bring in, which is um, there is a global north-south uh, equity question here. There's clearly a financial transfer need from the global north to the global south. And um, also a lot of the investment opportunities in nature-based solutions exist in Latin America, they exist in Africa, they exist in Asia, they exist in many developing countries, in addition to the US and, and other uh, countries that have large geographic areas. <clears throat> so I would say it depends on your company priorities. We, for example, have a very strong market in Brazil. We have a very fast-growing business there. <clears throat> so for us, uh, it's not a contradiction to say we also focus on investments in Brazil for our 100 million trees and even for our carbon credits we have similarly in india just past 10,000 staff there so that's another important market for us so for us we we also align where our company has key um, business priorities with where we make investments i think that's normal but to summarize a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon it doesn't matter where you buy it, you have to look at the co-benefits and what other benefits you want. Your staff, your shareholders, your investors, your customers to see from your investments. Hmm. Yeah, so um, companies have to have a place to purchase these carbon credits. And this is something really cool that, that Salesforce has is a, is a whole marketplace for companies to go in and, and purchase these credits. Salesforce calls it the net zero marketplace. Um, I just, I just like to hear your thoughts on on this marketplace and how does Salesforce utilize this marketplace in the context of carbon credits, and also what what role does it play in the company's sustainability efforts? So, um, if you go to netzero.salesforce.com, you will see the the marketplace, and one of the coolest things about it is actually that we um, we have third party rating agencies that are like you know the, the standard and poorest for credit rating you have silvera b0 calix global these are three agencies we use to already review the carbon credits and the projects that are on that marketplace so you as a buyer especially one who's buying for the first time or doesn't have a large team to 
log into the due diligence can be assured that there's already been some some quality checking now um it's right now available only for um customers in the US and we are a broker we don't sell anything on the marketplace we bring project developers together with people buy account credits i think we've been and still are a little bit ahead of our time with the marketplace though because um <clears throat> if you think back to the early origins of amazon the company uh they started with books because it was the only thing that people could imagine they would ever buy over the internet without seeing and feeling and touching it of course that has since then evolved i think we're at a stage now where people are understandably still reluctant to buy something off the shelf without actually doing the due diligence themselves without knowing the projects with the uncertainty in the voluntary carbon market regulation so there's still a lot of things that need to fall into place um but the net zero marketplace is a very important pioneering effort to ensure we bring the transparency integrity into the market we make it easier for especially first time buyers to to purchase and we also decrease the brokerage fees that's clearly uh, an objective for us there's a lot of middlemen in the voluntary carbon market that sell a ton of carbon credit from a developing country with a very high markup <clears throat> to do all the packaging and brokerage and and quality assurance that a company requires and those fees can sometimes be very high and we want to make sure that as much money as possible flows to the local communities flows into the actual projects and that's again something where an online marketplace like ours can provide much needed transparency and clarity also on pricing yeah i i was looking at at this marketplace um and one of my one of my coworkers was sitting beside me it was probably a month ago when i was doing research on this on this episode um, and we were just looking through the marketplace and we were just blown away because of all of the different things you can sort by on, on the marketplace. And one of the cool things, um, one of my last episodes I had was with Paula Caballero on the sustainable development goals. And something cool in this marketplace is you can actually filter projects based on the SDG that the project aligns with. I mean, it's, I, I just, I just love that. Because this helps companies to align with specific SDGs that they might have in their ESG report. So this makes it very easy. It's very user-friendly. Um, and as you're saying, it, it's easy to navigate, um, easy to see where in the world these projects are, You know what, what are the social co-benefits, what are the environmental benefits. Um, it's just It's a really good thing that Salesforce has done. And you're making it easier for companies to make a difference. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that's that's what what we all should be doing as as companies. Yeah, to give you an example of why that is relevant, I spoke with a friend in Dubai who's a, a head of carbon purchasing at Heineken, and they've just started to build out a portfolio and <clears throat> making some investments. And Heineken, as a brewing company, they're of course highly dependent on water as their for their supply chains. So their main focus would be on SDG 6 as having co-benefits, which is the SDG on clean water. And um, if they can filter projects by that, and then they can also filter by geography, they will get a very close match with what is relevant to their supply chain, to their company narrative, to, their, to the stories they need to share with their 
customers and with investors and shareholders. So yeah, I think this is really relevant to a lot of companies. And it's also a learning experience for me how relevant the SDGs are in the private sector. When you work for the UN, you sometimes have the perception that nobody knows about the SDGs outside of the UN, but that's absolutely not true. Not only does my son and daughter learn about it in their middle school uh, here in, in Denmark and probably in many schools around the world, companies are actually filtering, as you say, by what impacts they need to especially zoom in on, what stories they, they want to share. So yeah, that's a, it's a great feature. And again, let me reiterate here that more companies can actually do what you did and do that as a first step to look at how they not only reduce their emissions, or number one, at the same time, invest in a meaningful climate action portfolio based on carbon credits, and they can use the net zero marketplace for that. I think this is a good point in the conversation to talk about science-based climate targets. Um, we, we had talked about this a little bit earlier, but this is another topic that's really coming into its own right now. A lot of companies are are setting these these science based climate targets, and this is this is something that I, I know especially Fortune five hundred companies are looking at. Um, and another topic that people might not be as familiar with. Um, so I just wanted to ask you to maybe just provide a high level on what exactly are science based climate targets, and why are they crucial to fight against um, climate change. So as the name implies, these are targets that are based on the science that the IPCC <clears throat> tells us is necessary to take climate action, what action we need to take to stay within the 1.5 degree target. And you can also call these Paris-aligned climate targets. The Science-Based Target Initiative is a network uh, initiative based on um, NGOs that have gotten together with key scientists to ensure that there's some kind of quality assurance and rigor. Salesforce has a science-based target, and not only that, we also require actually that our major suppliers set one up. So this is in our supplier contract. If you want to sell to Salesforce, we will ask you to sign the sustainability exhibit in our procurement contracts. If you are not in a position to set up a science-based target, we will give you um, some tech support and some help to do the, the necessary legwork because it's actually quite complicated and requires a lot of fact-finding within the company. One area where we slightly disagree with the SBTI as the only approach to use is that um, they've put a lot of effort on closing that loophole, that get-out-of-jail-free card we mentioned earlier. Um, which is important, but it means for climate leaders like us that the incentive to do more than reduce and focus on that until 2030 and then until our net zero target date, it has removed the, in the incentive to also invest at the same time in carbon credits. <clears throat> so we're grateful for the VCMI to come with claims guidance that now, again, incentivizes us to do both. We want to reduce our emissions. We have a $100 million commitment, for example, to invest, to invest in carbon dioxide removal technologies. We have reached 100% renewable energy across our operations. Uh, we have invested heavily in climate startups that help us close gaps where we, where we still see them. I mentioned sustainable aviation fuels earlier. Travel is one of our emissions um, categories that is hardest to reduce for Salesforce. 
But at the same time, we also want to invest in climate action outside of our own value chain, outside of our own company. And we do that, do that through uh, carbon credits. We want to continue to do that. And that's where I think the science-based target initiative is, has become a bit too restrictive for that kind of leadership. So we need a new standard that goes beyond that. And VCMI has provided that um, just uh, ahead of COP on the 28th of November. They released a new claims code of practice. But there's certainly um, value in the SBTI. There's value in the VCMI. There's value to throw another acronym into the acronym soup here. The ICVCM, the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market that looks at supply side, what makes a good carbon credit. So all of these efforts are important. What is even more important is that they work together. So there's clarity for companies like ours. And we also need clarity um, over time, which will come at the next COP, hopefully on how Article 6 of the Paris Agreement evolves, which is the article that deals with market-based uh, mechanisms, including carbon markets and how countries can also involve, invest in, in carbon markets. That is still um, work in progress, but my expectation is very clearly that this will become a multi-billion dollar industry. Well, it already is. It will probably become a multi-trillion dollar industry to invest in carbon dioxide removal, invest in climate smart technologies, invest in regenerative agriculture this decade and this century, because it's uh, inevitable that that kind of investment will will come for us to ensure we have a civilization uh, that is worth calling a civilization. And of course, we will do everything we can as humanity to ensure that. As as more companies and um, I guess more companies start prioritizing sustainability, I mean, we've seen this, I would say, especially in, uh, let's just say the last 10 years, more companies are starting to put out sustainability report responsibility report, ESG report. So with that means that companies are tracking more of their data, um, tracking their, their carbon emissions, tracking their water usage or water withdrawal, um, tracking their suppliers, um, tracking a, a lot of different areas um, of their business in terms of sustainability. So with that, you have to do a lot of reporting um, and companies have entire teams that just focus on reporting now. Um, and so another, another, I'll say the word cool, um, cool thing that uh, Salesforce has is a platform that would manage all of your ESG data and bring all of the data together um, in an easy to use and easy to view way um, where you can track your science-based targets, um, where you can see your climate impact and where you can easily translate this information into something like an ESG report. This is the, the Salesforce net zero cloud. So I don't know if I did it justice in that introduction, um, Tim, but could you talk to us a little bit about what this net zero cloud is and how it, how it helps companies um, in, their, in their drive to be more sustainable? You, you did that beautifully. There's really not much for me to add, um, <laughs> except that we developed net zero cloud initially not as a product, but as our own tool, because we need to do this as a large company. Salesforce has 70,000 staff. We have um, operations in dozens of countries across the world. There's a lot of data we need to, to compile for our own climate action plan. And then eventually we realized that as a technology company, we can, of course, make this a very cool, as you said, tool. And Net Zero Cloud started as focusing mostly on emission reporting, but now it has functionalities for water, waste, and other issues 
You mentioned ESG is also has uh, data that can be pulled in on social dimensions of ESG. So that it is a tool that will make, will allow companies to be compliant with European law, with expected SEC rulings. But more importantly, it will identify where you can make the biggest emission reduction as a company and where you have to invest first, where you can get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of climate action investments. That is where we see the real value of Net Zero Cloud. It's not just as it's not just a reporting tool. It's a it's a tool that can X-ray your entire business operations and showcase you've got an issue here. You, this is where you have to invest. This is this is how you could invest. We use predictive AI to run some of that diagnostics for you as a company. So yeah, it is a very cool tool. Easy to use, you mentioned. This is the only part where I would caution a little bit. Um, this does require still expertise on the side of the company that uses it. It's not a tool that um, replaces human uh, expertise. And I see many companies have to staff up and are staffing up on sustainability reporting because it's becoming more and more regulated. Companies will have to have a huge step change in compliance and what they report to the regulators. Um, so there's a lot of jobs in sustainability coming up <laughs> to anybody who's out there listening and wants to make this her or his career. You, you, you're at the right time. Just make sure you have all the skills um, needed and there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to think about, you know, when, when someone like the United Nations puts out a goal, um, like the SDGs, puts out, you know, the Paris Agreement to reduce global temperatures by 1.5 to 2 degrees, what all that brings um, to the global economy, that brings companies to start looking at their individual footprints, that brings companies to start employing more people, like you're saying, because you need to track and report on what you're doing. It is really like a huge full circle thing um, when United Nations puts out um, different different initiatives, different um, goals like this. But the final segment I want to get into, Tim, um, is talking about this climate action plan um, that Salesforce has. And what I have in my notes right here is it's six different pillars, I'll call them, um, for this action plan. And this is emissions reduction, carbon removal, and net zero marketplace, which we touched on, ecosystem restoration, um, education and mobilization, innovation, and lastly, regulation and policy. So I know these are a lot, so we don't have to go in depth with all of them, um, but I, I do want to unpack each of them just a little bit. Um, and starting, starting with this emissions reduction, um, I, I read an interview with Salesforce um, Chief Impact Officer where she said Salesforce is now one of the few companies in the world to source 100% renewable energy across the business, becoming a net zero residual emissions company. So this is this is obviously um, incredible um, what Salesforce has done. So could you just talk to this and talk about renewable energy um, for Salesforce operations? Yeah, this is actually something we're really proud of. And the story goes a bit deeper than um, <clears throat> what Suzanne shared in the interview. There was not time to unpack it there, but that's why I love podcasts. You have time to tell the story uh, with, with more nuance. So when we wanted to do this and started to invest in a couple of years ago, we found out, of course, there was not enough renewable energy to go around because everybody wanted some, especially for big tech companies and companies that had the science-based target. So 
not only did we purchase and make long-term purchase agreements with um, renewable energy producers, which then in turn enabled them to build the actual renewable energy capacity, we also invested in wind in the US, for example, and solar power in Australia to ensure that there is enough renewable energy capacity for the market needs. This is something we still struggle with as a global economy. I mean, not necessarily Salesforce, because we we have secured the renewable energy we need. But um, as a global economy, we have to triple renewable energy capacity by, by 2030, which is one of the voluntary commitments came, that came out of COP28. So there's a lot of exciting um, movement there. Happy to talk about how our different aspects of the Climate Action Plan are also linked, because you spoke about policy and regulation. That's, that's an area where, personally, I'm most excited about taking climate action as a big multi-billion dollar global company, because we have on our website very clearly articulated climate policy priorities, nature policy priorities. You can transparently see on our website what we stand for including mandatory emissions disclosure for large companies globally. That kind of advocacy is very powerful in a global and even in a national policy context. Share one example, our chief executive officer, Mark Benioff, co-signed a statement with 300 other leaders the day before the final decision was made at COP28, pushing for more ambition on nature, on technology, on renewable energies, on fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuel phase out. And these kinds of advocacy pushes from the private sector have a lot of power and potential. So this is, this is an area where I'm actually very proud of Salesforce. I wish more companies had transparently and available to the public what they actually lobby for, because there's a lot of lobbying going on, tens of thousands of lobbyists in Washington and Brussels and at the UN meetings. But we want to know as customers, as peers, as investors, as shareholders, what do these companies actually advocate for? In our case, you can read it on our website. Yeah, the way that I've seen this, especially in the last year in the US, for climate action to take place at scale, it really starts with regulation and policy. In the US, you have two policies, bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act that is pushing a lot of funding to, I'd say, sustainability, sustainable manufacturing to bring us more to, to net zero. Um, and even, even where I live, like three exits down from me, um, Q-Cells, a, a, a Korean solar manufacturer, opened up their first U.S.-based facility, just two exits down the road from me in Georgia, in North Georgia. Um, and they did this because of funding provided and tax incentives provided um, in these policies. So I'm glad you talked about that. Um, and I actually did some research on um, policies that, that Salesforce, I guess, advocates for. Um, and two of these that I wrote down were the Replant Act and the Ocean Super Year Declaration. And I, I, don't, I didn't do enough research to, to talk about them, um, but I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on those, um, what those are, and, and how Salesforce, again, advocates for those two different policies. Yeah, as you know, we love forests and trees at Salesforce. Um, this is something that um, goes all the way up to our chief executive officer, or maybe I should say it, it comes all the way down from our CEO. Um, and oceans is another is another big priority for us. The reason we spotted the Replant Act, for example, is um, that this kind of investment is 
so beneficial for the American people, for many of the U.S. states that have degraded or burned forests that need to be restored, or forest areas of agroforestry, of more trees on farms that could benefit local livelihoods, the climate, nature, um, and even productivity, that we were excited to see um, in the Inflation Reduction Act <clears throat> and later the Replant Act, a lot of money set aside for trees. We're slightly daunted by the prospect of the commitment the U.S. has made of 55 billion trees replanted. Um, that is a massive logistical undertaking. And right now, even a sophisticated developed country like the U.S. does not have the infrastructure to roll out this massive replanting. Uh, think of thousands of nurseries, millions of people who have to have qualified jobs as seed collectors, as um, taxonomists, as people who can help ensure that we have the right trees to replant. That's a multi-billion dollar industry uh, waiting to be kickstarted. And um, it is a much, much better use of taxpayer money than investing in fossil fuel subsidies, where still most of the taxpayer subsidies across the world is going as $1.8 trillion per year of taxpayer money that's being spent on making oil, coal, and gas cheaper, so making the problem worse instead of making it better. If you can shift some of that money into creating rural jobs through the Replant Act or other investments in nature or in rural infrastructure, that is much, much better for the environment, for health, for jobs. And I'll end by saying that also goes for renewables. Renewable energy outperforms, especially coal, but also other fossil fuel projects in jobs created by about five to one. So we have to make sure we shift these taxpayer subsidies to where they have the most benefit for people, for climate and for nature. Well, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for for breaking that down because um, I, I definitely learned something there. I didn't, I didn't know much about the Replant Act, but this is this is really good information. We went through two of the two of the pillars of the Climate Action Plan, and we talked about two of the other ones earlier. So we don't have to go as in depth right now about those on, on carbon re removal. Um, we talked about um, the net zero marketplace and carbon credits, and then ecosystem restoration. We talked about the partnership with one one T dot org. So we don't have to go into those. But the next thing I do want to talk about is education and mobilization. You used the word link earlier. And I think education is linked to everything in sustainability. Education, um, if you can teach people from, from a young age the importance on sustainability, the importance of something like carbon removal, the importance of something like water restoration, then after, after they're out of school and when they're in jobs, um, they're leading companies, and now they they have that um, that knowledge base inside of them. So education is is paramount, in my opinion, um, not just for young people, but for people of all ages. And Salesforce, this is one of my favorite things. Um, maybe my favorite thing that that you do as a company, putting and providing education to people at at no cost. And you have these platforms like Trailhead and Earthforce for education and mobilization in the sustainability space. For me, I could go. Let's say, let's say I lose my job today um, and I'm like, oh, I just need to stay involved in sustainability. I need to keep my education up for that next job. Or maybe I'm just wanting to learn more um, about sustainability. I can go on, on um, Salesforce website 
and go through courses and learn about all different types of su- sustainability. Um, so Salesforce doesn't just talk the talk. They also walk the walk um, and bringing that education at scale. I say all that. Could you could you talk about uh, your two platforms, Trailhead and Earthforce, and what those two uh, platforms mean for education? Yeah, happy to do that. Before I get there, I just wanted to add here also that um, we reached about $700 million of all-time philanthropic giving um, this year. <clears throat> so this is $700 million that were spent since Salesforce was started as part of our 111 model to give away 1% of our time, of our product, of our equity um, per year. And well over half of that has gone into education, especially upskilling for the technology sector, but also increasingly green skills, making sure people have the right skills to deal with climate change. So we invest a lot of money also through our philanthropy. The, recess, the, the most recent example is a AI for, AI for Impact Accelerator, where we supported education organizations, NGOs with the necessary skills and tools to deploy AI as part of their uh, rollout for education in the U.S. Trailhead plays a complementary role to that because it's open to everybody. It has a number of sustainability, climate action, tree, ocean, trails. Our whole climate action plan is sort of very well explained. That we walk you through step-by-step step what, what the climate action plan does. And um, Earthforce is our internal volunteer task force. So there's about 14,000 Earthforce staff who are organized in Earthforce. These are people who have sustainability at heart, who want to do more for forests, for oceans. So they often get together for volunteer activity. Each Salesforce staff gets up to a week per year of paid time off in addition to your annual leave to take volunteering um, causes for charities of your choice. So that VTO, we call it, is what Earthforce does a lot. They also, they also have an important role in keeping uh, us honest as a company because these are sometimes our most vocal um, critics from inside the company asking us, what do we do for climate action? How do we ensure that there's still a business on a f- flourishing planet because there's no business on a dead planet, right? So we have a lot of internal momentum and push to invest in sustainability. That's why I think Earthforce probably more as an internal advocacy platform than, than an education platform is important. Trailhead is something where we, we really see a lot of uptake recently in courses on Net Zero, on Net Zero Cloud as a product, one of our most popular courses on Trailhead. So I'd um, encourage everybody who wants those kinds of skills which are useful in any job, not just if you work full-time on sustainability, to go on Trailhead and, and check them out. The final piece of um, your climate action plan is talking about innovation. And I'll say this quickly. I believe that people that work in sustainability are the most innovative because when you look at sustainability, I mean, what you're doing all the time is just problem solving. You're figuring out how can I reduce waste? How can I, re- how can I reduce my footprint? How can I reduce um, my, my water withdrawal rate? Um, you're looking at a lot of different areas where you're trying to solve problems. So innovation plays a critical role in a company's sustainability strategy. And I mean, it, it speaks to it that it's in, it's one of the pillars in your climate action plan. And there's one platform that is called Uplink. 
that I would say contributes to innovation um, in the context of climate action. So this is the last platform I'll ask you to, to talk about, uh, just because I think it's very important for the listeners to, to gain an understanding of what this is. Uh, but c- could you just give a brief um, talking about what, what Uplink is and then why innovation is important, not just in terms of a company's success, but in terms of a, co- a company's sustainability strategy? Sure. So Uplink connects about 50,000 and more and more every week, 50,000 young or young at heart ecopreneurs, we call them, people who make sustainability their life's mission or their life's business. These are many startups in the climate action space. And we run periodic challenges where we, we push that system for innovation. We ran one recently on sustainable aviation fuel because it's big need for us to solve for. And um, out of the submissions we received, what we then do with that challenge and others, we select a small group of winners and we give them access to mentorship, to venture um, investors. And some of these winners we've invested as Salesforce, for example, Silvera, this carbon credit rating agency I mentioned. So that ecosystem of innovation called Uplink is something that I not only encourage everybody to join and just check it out, see what's there, but also other companies. If you have a specific innovation need, contact the World Economic Forum and the Uplink team. We co-founded Uplink four years ago with Deloitte and World Economic Forum and and Salesforce. Contact the, the WEF team, describe what your problem is. They can probably run an Uplink challenge for you that will result not in one, but in five or 10 great ideas for solving that specific issue because as you said we're we're problem solvers what is exciting about climate change is you also want to be poly poly solvers because we're in a poly crisis it's not only climate change it's also ecosystem collapse it's freshwater scarcity it's um it's growing inequality how can we ensure that we solve for many of these things with the same kind of technology and there's a lot of good ideas out there, especially from the younger generation. And much of that is channel throttling. So I have two final questions for you, Tim, um, and, then, and then we'll wrap up. The, the first one of those questions, we started this conversation talking about COP28, talking about the sustainable development goals, talking about the Paris Agreement. So I want to end on the note of asking you, are we on the right track to hit the Paris Agreement? Obviously, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time in Dubai talking to a lot of people at COP, um, and I, I'm guessing a lot of people have their own thoughts on this. But in your opinion, are we as a world going in the right direction to hit the Paris Agreement? So the answer to that, unfortunately, is absolutely not. If you look at the past 30 years, we've pumped out more emissions than in the past 200 years together. 50% of all emissions that are in the atmosphere were pumped out into that kind of open sewer in the last 30 years. So that is not what I would call on track. It's even likely that we will overshoot the 1.5 degree target with possibly irreversible consequences. But I think there's a social tipping point that is happening across the agri-food system, across the energy system, across the finance industry that will respond to that crisis. So if this if this was a movie about humanity um, and we want that movie to have a happy end, you would be at the point in the plot where suddenly everything seems to go wrong and it's towards the end. 
And we have to muster a all of humanity, all of society, all of government effort to ensure we get back on track. That's what's at stake now. But right now, we're at the part of the movie plot where everything is actually looking pretty bleak in terms of the overall indicators. If you look closer, though, you see all these innovation, that buzz of excitement, the 110,000 people who came to Dubai just to make business of climate action. That is the closer look that points me towards we can still do this, but it requires everybody. Everybody is an, a player on the field of climate action. There's no spectators in this. Hmm. Nobody can say, oh, I didn't know, or sorry, I was on the wrong side of history. That's not where you want to be. You want to engage now as a company, as a citizen, as a government. So last question, taking that macro question, looking more micro here, looking more personal. It's a very generic question, Tim. And I ask, I try to ask this on every podcast. Sometimes I, I miss it, but the question is, what does sustainability mean to you? The best reflection of what sustainability means and what a world that is sustainable looks like is expressed in the sustainable development goal. Because it's not just taking care of climate action. It is also about peace. It is about gender equality. It's about access to good education for all children worldwide. So we have to put all of that together to describe the future we want. And when the SDGs were adopted in 2015, I was really proud. I think this was one of those moments in, in human history when we, we grow above ourselves and above our greed and selfish, selfishness and, uh, and short-sightedness. And we, we come together as humanity and set a goal for ourselves that is bigger than, than, than us individually or as nation states and i think that is still within reach 2030 is our goal i see that with the un decade on ecosystem restoration there's so much bubbling up right now so much action so much investments so much excitement and we're not even halfway through that decade i think there's enormous shifts towards sustainability that are coming well tim i can't thank you enough for, for joining us i know you're incredibly busy um, with all the work you're doing at Salesforce. Um, so thank you for, for talking all about Salesforce and also giving us a lot of education on, on different topics and sustainability. It was a pleasure. Great to meet you, Preston, and um, hope we'll see each other in person again soon. Thanks. Take care.